Pastor Brad and I were just recently asked the question, how do you go about deciding what you're going to preach on? You know, like what book of the Bible or what subjects you address, how do you decide that? And, and I said, well, I just take the Bible and open it up. And, <laughs> and I'm glad you're laughing because if that's how I did it, you should ask for my resignation. But we responded that there's really two things. Uh, one, often a pastor will find his heart inclined to preach and teach from something that he has been studying and that for a variety of reasons the Lord has sort of gripped his heart and mind with certain portions of Scripture. And so we hope to line up that inclination and we hope leading by the Lord with what does the congregation need? What do we sense at this time in the life of the church would be a good portion of God's Word to unpack with God's people. And again, we hope the Lord leads in our assessment and sense of that. Of course, it's difficult to make a mistake because all Scripture is inspired by God. But nonetheless, um, I had to make a decision about what I would be uh, preaching on uh, this morning. And I was prompted to move, as you can see by the title, to the message in the outline by a statement that Pastor Brad made to the congregation just a couple of Sundays before Christmas. And if you were here, uh, and during the service, it wasn't during his sermon, he said it had been on his heart to start encouraging the church this coming year to be more focused on discipleship. And the uh, ministry of discipleship in the church, that it would really begin to, to flourish and, and expand. And because he said that, it got me thinking about discipleship, and so I felt inclined for us to look at this subject this morning. We can't do an exhaustive study, but there's some important uh, fundamental principles about discipleship in the Christian life that I did want to highlight with you uh, today. Some of you have heard uh, of the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, this generation probably has become familiar with him because of a, a biography that was written by Metaxas that came out a few years ago. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Lutheran pastor uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And in 1937, he published a book entitled The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he makes this statement. Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. Now, that's a, a provoking statement. And what is ironic about him writing that in 1937, the cost of discipleship, little did he know that just eight years later, he would be executed by the Nazi government just weeks before World War II came to an end. And he was uh, on the list of pastors in the crosshairs of the Nazi government simply because they stood with what was called the Confessing Church. This was a movement in reaction to the Lutheran Church, the state church that endorsed Hitler. And so many of the genuine Christians within the church could not abide that, so they pulled out and called themselves the Confessing Church, and he was a part of that movement. 
Now, it may seem pointless or unnecessary to defend the premise that being a Christian and being a disciple are inseparably wedded to one another, but from time to time, there have been efforts by some to distinguish between being a saved person, a Christian, and actually being a disciple. The effort to distinguish between the two and you might wonder, if this is a new thought to you, what would be the distinction between the two? Well, some would describe just the regular Christian who's trusted Christ for salvation and basically trying to live as the Bible teaches. But then there is the person who is a zealous Christian who's really totally sold out and committed, sort of a super spiritual Christian. And of course, what that does, that false dichotomy between the more mature and less mature creates almost a two-tiered system uh, within the church, which is, which is not acceptable. I want to mention an Englishman, and I've mentioned him numerous times before. Uh, his name was John Stott, and he wrote over 50 books, was a, a leading evangelical Anglican pastor uh, throughout the world. His writings have enriched my ministry immeasurably. And when he was 88 years old, he decided to write his last book. And in fact, at the end of the book, at age 88, he said, I'm laying down the pen. He never used the computer. He wrote all of his books. And he said, I'm um, laying down the pen for the last time. And so we might ask, well, what out of over 50 books did he decide to write on at the end of his life? And in fact, he died within two years after the book came out at age 90. And the book uh, that he wrote was on discipleship, and he called it Radical Discipleship. And I reference Dr. Stott's book because he makes an interesting observation in that book. He points out the fact that the first time that the followers of Christ are called Christians is in Acts 11, where at Antioch, we read by Luke's record that they were first called Christians. But only two more times, one more time in Acts when Paul's giving his defense before King Agrippa. I remember King Agrippa says, if you keep on, you may convince me to become a Christian. So there's those two times in Acts, and then the third time is in uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 4. So only three times are the followers of Christ called Christians. Eight times they're called believers. But they're referred to over 250 times as disciples of Jesus. And as the history of the early church progresses, followers of Christ become most often called Christians. And then the last comment I'll pass on, the insight from Dr. Stott, uh, he writes this, he observed that while Christian and disciple both convey a relationship with Jesus, perhaps the label disciple is the stronger term but because it describes the relationship of what the very word disciple means. And a disciple refers to a pupil or a learner, someone who is following a teacher. And the pupil-teacher relationship reflects the fundamental nature of a believer's relationship with Jesus Christ. And as I said, the word mathetes means a learner and a pupil. 
And in fact, in the secular world, even in ancient history and into the modern day, we maybe don't use the word disciple in those arenas so much, but mentoring has sort of been a buzzword in our own culture for uh, the last several uh, decades. But the context of where Jesus came on the scene and called people to follow him, where he gathered disciples, was really rooted in the rabbinical schools of Judaism in the first century. Because we know that John the Baptist had disciples, the Pharisees had disciples, and usually the brightest and best of the young Jewish boys, when they became 13 years old, if they showed promise, they entered into a rabbinical school where they came under the teaching of a particular rabbi, and they submitted to this teacher, they memorized the teacher's words, they learned the teacher's way of ministry, they sought to imitate the teacher's life, and then eventually they would be expected to go out on their own and become a teacher and gather their own disciples. And so that rabbinic tradition was very strict. And Jesus wasn't a product of that system. In fact, he chose his followers outside that system. And the centrality of discipleship is established by the most authoritative source there could possibly be, and that's Jesus himself. And I know you know these verses, but nonetheless, I'm going to uh, read them again. They're some of the first verses I ever cut my teeth on as a, a young Christian. But in one of two places, Matthew is one of them. At the conclusion of Matthew's gospel record, we read these three verses. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And this has rightly been pointed out by most Bible expositors, Bible teachers, and pastors, that there's a very important grammatical feature to those verses. And the grammatical feature is, is what is the imperative? What is the command? Well, it's not the going, which Jesus does command that in Acts 1.8, go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But that's not the command in this verse. The actual way it should be translated is that as you are going or having gone, the command comes, make disciples. Now, what's the immediate audience? Who was he talking to when he said that at the end of Matthew? Well, he was talking to the 11. Uh, that's clear. And then we also know that, well, uh, there's a bit of a controversy in some circles, and it shouldn't be a controversy uh, at all. Some people think, well, he said that to the 11. That's not something that every Christian is supposed to take to heart or feel obligated to do. But the fact is, it was obvious that more than the 11 understood the implications of that Great Commission or that mission mandate. Uh, for one thing, in Luke 10, we know that at one point he sent out 70 people at one time. And of course, when we come into Acts, uh, there's reasonable evidence 
that when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, that the ones who received the Spirit on that day were the 120 that were waiting in the upper room. Now, Jesus told the 11 to go and wait for the coming of the Spirit, but more than just the 11 waited, 120, including Mary, were in that upper room waiting for the coming of the Spirit. Uh, when Stephen, the first martyr, is stoned to death at the end of Acts chapter 7, Luke records right after that, in the very next chapter, 8 verse 1, that a persecution arose in the wake of Stephen's death, and that the result of the persecution is that it scattered people out into other towns and cities and even countries beyond Jerusalem. And it specifically says in the text that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. So it was only the other believers that were scattered and went out. And obviously, if they had never done that, Jesus' commission, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, would never have happened. So making disciples clearly means that once the gospel has been proclaimed and believed, resulting in spiritual birth, that it is to be followed by spiritual growth, teaching and helping and encouraging believers to mature in Christ. I'm not going to rehearse with you because it would take too long to do it justice, but we know that Jesus laid out the certain demands of discipleship. Take up your cross, renounce your possessions, etc., etc. And so we have these demands of discipleship, and people who come to Christ need to be guided through and taught and equipped to understand what it means to live for Christ. In fact, when you came in, if you came in a little earlier this morning, uh, we always have up here on the screen uh, the purposes um, of the chapel, why we exist. And one of those statements taken from Colossians 1, 28 and 29, which reads, we proclaim Him, this is Paul writing, we proclaim Him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete or mature in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. And so one of the main statements, we have three, about the existence of the chapel is we exist to help believers mature in Christ, to help promote growth in their spiritual journey. Now, when we talk about discipleship, we need to acknowledge that the process of discipleship takes place at several levels. On one side of the spectrum, there is uh, the collectively we disciple people to the other end of the spectrum where it becomes something that's very individual and personal. And of course, when I speak of being discipled collectively, I'm referring to what even Joel was referencing after the Apostles' Creed is that when we become a Christian, we become a part of the family of God. And when we are born into the family of God, we're baptized into a body of believers. We have that oneness with brothers and sisters in Christ of being loved, of loving others, of participating in corporate worship like we're doing this morning, praying, sitting under the teaching of the Word, serving fellowship. There's a discipleship that is going on in these collective corporate gatherings we have this morning. So what we're doing today is one of the levels of being discipled. 
the importance of interacting with each other and that it shows the Christian life was never intended to be a solo journey. For example, there's many places, but in Ephesians 5, Paul writes that we're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then we move from a, a collective group this size, then there's opportunities for discipleship, whether it's in a home group, like a chapel life group, or uh, classes on Sunday morning prior to the worship service. Obviously, there are Bible study groups. We have precept upon precept. And there are times when you're gathering with a smaller group than this, but still a group of people. And certainly, discipleship happens at that level. But also, as I said, there is on the spectrum the individual and personal, one-on-one, -on -one, one person discipling another. And we see this demonstrated throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament. Uh, Joshua was prepared to be the leader he was. Why? Because the Old Testament account tells us that Joshua ministered to Moses, and he was at Moses' elbow for many, many years. Uh, Elijah and Elisha. Uh, Elisha uh, was trained uh, under Elijah's wing. And the same thing, once Elijah left this world, Elisha had been equipped because of the one-on-one -on -one relationship uh, with Elijah. And one of the things you'll notice in both of those examples is that they are being mentored, discipled, first by observing what their discipler is doing, next by participating in and also by the direct instruction that they were given. And this is where Jesus and the Twelve is so instructive for us. No one better to look to than our Lord Jesus for what it means to disciple someone personally. And there's a word that is very important to not have it escape your notice. I won't have you turn there, but um, I'll just read it to you. It's in Mark 3.14. And it's a simple sentence, but it packs a very important point. And he appointed 12 so that they would... Now, we might think, knowing of the Great Commission coming, that what the text would say is he appointed them in order to train them to go out and change the world. But that's not what the text says. For those of you that remember, it states, and he appointed 12 so that they would be with Him, an important preposition, with Him, and that He could send them out to preach. And we know, most of us, uh, we've read the gospel accounts, Jesus chose these 12 men, and they didn't meet one morning a week, or they didn't gather just on the Sabbath, 24-7 for almost three years, they were in Jesus' presence. So when the text says He chose them to be with them, they were with Him for over three years. I like the summation of this writer. 
And he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach that they, or in order that, introduces two subordinate clauses, and it goes on to explain the grammar of that. But then the writer goes on to say this, it is indeed remarkable that apart from any formalized schooling procedure, Jesus taught the disciples mainly by drawing them close to himself in a personal relationship. Jesus and the disciples walked the roads, visited cities, fished together, worshiped together at synagogue and temple. Jesus traveled, ate, slept, relaxed, taught, preached, and healed while all of them were with him. He took them aside for mountain retreats. He spent several months with them east of the Jordan River. He tarried in the wilderness with them. As his ministry progressed into the second and third years, one might expect Jesus would try to maximize his time with the multitudes, but he spent increasingly more time with his disciples. As he approached his last week in Jerusalem, culminating in his crucifixion, he was in their company continually. Now, there's a problem of I can't say I really agree with the words of that writer because I wrote them in my doctoral dissertation. But anyway, that summation just... Priscilla liked that. Now, you may say, okay, that's all well and good, Richard, but Christ is the Son of God. I'm not Jesus. Well, neither was the Apostle Paul. He wasn't Jesus. And Paul understood the importance of one Christian discipling another. And if you would turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy 2. Because I'm giving a topical message, I was kind of joking with Brad this week that every time I go to give a topical message, because our normal diet here is going through books of the Bible verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, that I always have Dr. Walter Kaiser, Old Testament and Hebrew professor's words in the back of my mind. He used to tell us in class, with the measure of hyperbole, someone asked, well, teaching verse by verse is great, but isn't there room for a topical message? And he would say, of course, but just make sure it's rooted in Scripture, and then when you do it, repent, don't do it again for five years. So, um, again, I think he was using hyperbole to make a point. But in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. His flow of thought here is captivating to me because I want your eye to drop back a few verses earlier in chapter 1, verse 12. And the flow of thought that I find captivating is how he uses this word in trust. In verse 12, for this reason, Paul says, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. So Paul knew what he had entrusted to God in following him. Verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit 
who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So he's entrusted his life and ministry to God. God has entrusted to him this treasure, which is the message of the gospel. Then, as we come to chapter 2, the two verses I just read, that which through the Holy Spirit he has received and is entrusted with, he is to impart that to other faithful men who will continue to pass it along. So not only is the gospel to be proclaimed and protected, it is to be preserved and propagated. And of course, that's how the church exists today, actually. Uh, we know that the apostles, of course, wrote or superintended the writing of the inspired words of God in the New Testament. And it was those words with the Old Testament that the church leaders and elders that came up in the wake of the apostles uh, carried on that tradition. In fact, this is an interesting observation that's even made before the end of the first century. I don't want to go into the weeds too much on the history here, but the earliest authentic Christian document that is preserved outside the New Testament, so the earliest preserved writing of a Christian other than the New Testament, was written in A.D. 96. That's only about five years after the Apostle John died. And it was a man named Clement, and he wrote a letter to the church at Corinth. And it's not a long sentence, but part of his letter includes this. Our apostles appointed the aforesaid persons, that is the elders, and afterwards they provided a continuance that if these should fall asleep, i.e. die, other approved men should succeed to their ministry. So even before the first centuries come to a close, they have understood the importance of the gospel being shared and people being discipled and continuing to impart. And it can't stop with one person being discipled. They need to be discipling and teaching someone else. And personal example and personal relationship is integral to this. Paul said to the Philippians, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Even more bluntly, writing to the Corinthians, he says, be imitators of me. The Thessalonians, one of my favorite people groups in the New Testament, the Thessalonians were commended by Paul because they had become an example to so many other people. And of course, that begs the question, what is the example that we are displaying in our walk with Christ? First, before our brothers and sisters in this congregation, and then beyond into the world in which we live. Now, Paul does state, when he's writing to the Corinthians, he mentions it twice. He says, one time, be imitators of me. Then he says again in chapter 11, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. So we're not looking for personal following. We would encourage someone to follow our example to the extent that we are following the example of Jesus. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians. I've mentioned that there is an important place for personal individual discipling of people. But the manner in which we do it, the kind of relationships we establish, 
1 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 7. Now, before I read these verses, now we know from other writings of Paul, especially to the people at Corinth, he had some pretty harsh things to say. In fact, sometimes Paul was so confronted. Remember the time he confronted Peter, a fellow apostle, and exhorted him, admonished him? And so sometimes I think we get this view of Paul that he was sort of this crusty guy you wouldn't want to live next door to even though he's a Christian, you know. But verse 7 and the verses that follow, but we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The language there is just, it's touching. I mean, he uses two examples from a parental model. I mean, can you think of a more tender picture than a mother caring for her small child? I mean, it's, it's one of the most uh, powerful bonds in human relationships, uh, the way a mother is so attentive uh, and tender and nurturing uh, her children. And to say that he has a fond affection for them in verse 8. Now, you may say, well, I'm no Apostle Paul. But it is obvious, again, that the model of discipling one another in the body of Christ was embraced by believers in general, not just the main leaders or the pastors or the elders. When Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, he says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are also doing. The last text I'll have you turn to, I put three, I think, at the top of your outline there, Titus chapter 2. It's first, second Timothy, and then Titus. Now, again, my point here is simply to demonstrate that this was something that was reciprocal and mutual within the congregation, and it wasn't just the leaders up front doing all the discipling. Verse 1, Titus 2, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible, 
In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Well, notice there that he talks about the older men, their character, their conduct, their doctrine. He talks about the younger men with their character and their conduct and their doctrine. He talks about the older women and mentions their character, their conduct, and their doctrine. And then the same with the younger women, their character and their conduct. And so it's obvious that the, they're very aware of one another and that instructions are being given to how we relate within the body of Christ. And we're all at different ages and different stages of life, but there's a way we're to be speaking into one another's lives. When he's writing to Timothy, uh, he tells uh, people not to rebuke an older man, but uh, rather appeal to him as a father and appeal to the younger men as brothers. So he's using this, this family metaphor to talk about how we're to be relating within the body of Christ as a local church. And of course, this discipling amongst one another gets very specific. Uh, one of the first papers I ever did in seminary, uh, I, I did a study in the Greek text of all the one another passages. Every time it says something we're supposed to be doing with one another, and you could probably compile the list in your own minds. You know, we're told, uh, among other things, to love one another, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to forgive one another, to be devoted of one another, give preference to one another in honor, be of the same mind with one another. I mean, it's, it's really quite a long list. Someone recently in my hearing uh, made this statement that he always tried to have a Paul and a Timothy in his life. I was weaned on that principle. What we just read in 2 Timothy 2, where he said, in part to faithful men who will impart to others, Timothy was obviously one of those special young men that Paul poured a lot of his life into. And every Christian should have a Paul in his life, a more mature believer who is speaking into their life, and a younger believer that you're helping along to encourage in their walk with Christ. So Brad's exhortation here a few Sundays ago certainly echoes the biblical pattern. And in the weeks to come, uh, we want to provide some resources and put some things in your hands, because if you've never, quote, discipled anyone, some, there's so many great things out there. Uh, over the decades, I have used different booklets that walk a, a young Christian through some of the basics of the Christian life. I mean, how do you study the Bible? How are you supposed to pray? Uh, what is the role of church in a Christian's life? I mean, how do you share your faith? How is it that you grow as a Christian? I mean, and we all need instruction in these things. And hopefully it always happens from the pulpit, but it needs to be honed down at some point to a one-on-one. -on -one. Discipling should always be centered and grounded in the Word of God. And that may be a profound grasp of the obvious to you, but the fact of the matter is over the years I've heard of spiritual formation ministries. One of them had actually asked people to come on a retreat and not bring their Bibles. These people are professing Christians. 
I mean, I warned everybody within earshot, stay away from that retreat. Jesus said in John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I've noticed uh, a lot of contemporary Christians in writing on some of these relationships of helping someone along are kind of using the term mentoring more than discipleship. I'm not going to quibble as long as they mean the same thing, but I'm going to stick with discipling because that's the biblical term. But I, I do appreciate the insights, and I've read an enormous amount on this concept of discipling and mentoring in my life. Uh, one man said that discipling or mentoring is a dynamic relationship of trust in which one person enables another to maximize the grace of God in his or her life and service. Uh, another, mentoring is a lifelong relationship in which a mentor helps a protege reach his or her God-given potential. Someone else brought a different spin to it. Mentoring is a brain to pick, a shoulder to cry on, and a push in the right direction. Now, you know we have a, a real respect and appreciation for the Nine Marks Ministries with Mark Dever and Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And uh, I was looking through Mark Dever's book on discipling, discipleship here uh, just a day or two ago, and he has a very succinct description of discipling. He says, quote, discipling others, doing deliberate spiritual good to help them follow Christ doing deliberate spiritual good to help them follow Christ. Now, of course, if, if a Christian and if a church is not investing in discipleship, uh, the consequences are pretty serious. And at the end of Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, he admonishes those Hebrew Christians for the fact that by now they should be mature and teaching others. He said, but that's not the case. You can't handle meat. You're still on milk. That's because they've never grown. And to me, it is so sad to think that someone would be born again and become a Christian and then never get out of the nursery of the Christian life. Someone has to come along beside them, an individual and a church family to encourage people uh, to grow. And of course, the consequences to the positive is that the friendship and the joy, the relationships I've had in my life are some of the richest I've ever had. And of course, a pastor can't do one-on-one -on -one with everybody, but you just sense there's certain people you're supposed to try to come alongside. And, and here it is, um, I'm trying to think how many years later this is, some 30 years later, not too long ago, I had a man reference back to when I met with him once a week for a year going through a book on the Lord's Prayer. And uh, I remember it well, but it was obvious that 30 years later, this is a, a benchmark in his life that he goes back to. And that's not to draw attention to myself, because you notice in the verses I read from Paul, he said, it's the Spirit and the power of God that mightily works within me to bring every man to maturity in Christ. That was in Colossians 1. And, and, I, and my heart was blessed just in 
casual conversation just in the last week, uh, I overheard one man just in passing talk about two different men that he has lunch with once a week. I was talking with another guy. He's been having lunch. Now, of course, sometimes someone's sick, someone's out of town, but the, the, uh, the, the regular rhythm is weekly. I know they had another brother in this church tell me he's been having lunch with a guy once a week for 15 years. I didn't think I was going to mention John Stott again, but I think I will. John Stott did not grow up in a Christian home, and when he went to Cambridge University, in the earliest years of his student life, he went to a meeting where a pastor from another town came and spoke, and he became a Christian in this meeting. And reading Stott's own account because this pastor lived in another town, this pastor wrote John Stott a letter, a handwritten letter, once a week. And in these letters, he uh, imparted theology, biblical doctrine, practical advice about living the Christian life, pursuing holiness and purity. He wrote Stott once a week for five years. Five years. Have you ever invested in someone like that? Now, I don't mean are there people that you golf with regularly or maybe uh, some of you ladies meet with a friend at the fitness center once a week or walk together or maybe guys go hunt together. Those are fine recreational things, but I mean where there's a deliberate purposeful getting together that part of my motive is I care about them, I love them, but I want to impart Christ to them and help them be all that Christ would have them to be. Encourage them in their relationship with Christ. In Mark Dever's little book on discipleship, uh, an observation, and we'll conclude with this, that uh, is pretty undeniable, is he uh, writes about the fact that all of us are inevitably influenced by other people. And all of us are having some influence on other people. And he asked the question, the only question that remains for you is, how will you use your influence? When you step out of the hallway, now I'm quoting him directly, when you step out of the hallway of this life into the room of eternity, what will you have left behind in the lives of others? According to the Bible, a disciple of Christ disciples others by helping them to follow Christ. Is that how you are exercising your influence? And my final word to you this morning is simply, disciples need disciplers. So you leave this place today and pray that God will bring someone to your mind that you can begin to seek out to help them along in this thing we call the Christian life. Let's pray. Father, the New Testament doesn't tell us everything we need to know about functioning as a church, some of the methodologies and practices, but it certainly tells us the most important things and all we must know and do to be the body of Christ that honors the head of our church, the Lord Jesus himself. And so, Lord, I pray if there are folks here today who 
perhaps have been timid about seeking to disciple someone else, I pray that you would give them a spirit of uh, desire and boldness that would prompt them to, uh, to put their toe in the water, as it were, and try meeting with someone and for the purpose of helping them grow as a Christian. Lord, we're all at different stages of maturation, but there's always someone who is farther along than us and someone who is not as far along as we are. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would really ignite a lot of folks in this church in the coming year to be more proactive in this matter of discipleship. We're not looking for personal followings, Lord. We want people to follow Jesus. Bless us in that way, and we pray in his name. Amen.